When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. DMV Download, the new daily podcast from WTOP News is out now. Hosts Megan Clorty and Luke Garrett get the story behind the story. Every weekday afternoon, Megan and I will go beyond the headlines with WTOP reporters and sources to bring you more on the biggest local stories impacting you, our fellow Washingtonians. The DMV Download podcast is available now on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The DMV Download podcast is presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Alan White, the Hall of Fame drummer of the prog rock band Yes, died today at age 72. I spoke about Yes's biggest hits from Roundabout to Owner of a Lonely Heart with frontman John Anderson in 2020. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Excellent. Good to hear you. Good to hear you, Jason. Where are we talking to you from? Are you in, in London or where are you? No, no, no. I'm Central California for the last 30 years. I'm in the halfway between L.A. and San Francisco, up in the hills, away from the hustle and the bustle of the local village. <laughs> nice, nice. Let's talk about your story a little bit. You tell our listeners what you know, where you grew up, and like you know, how what sort of music did you listen to growing up? Oh boy. Well, you got to go back. You know, I'm 75 now. You see. So when I was a kid growing up, I was listening to big band of the 40s. And then in the 50s, we had this thing called Skiffle, which actually was American-born early rock and roll. And uh, there was a guy in England called Lonnie Donegan. I think he was Irish. And he would play the Skiffle music, which was from America. And that evolved into rock and roll. And, of course, I was uh, so into the Everly Brothers because me and my brother Tony, who's about three years older than me, we would sing all the Everly Brothers songs. And then he would sing Elvis Presley, and I would sing, uh, you know, whoever whoever I could sing. And then all of a sudden the 60s came, and we we had a band called the Warriors. And, uh, you know, me and my brother went to see the Beatles before they became famous. Kind of incredible story. We went to see the Beatles in in a place called Southport, about 20 miles north of Liverpool, and they just had this single, Love Me Do, on, on the radio. So Tony, very, very smart guy, so let's go see them on his motorbike. And we went there. And it was amazing. And uh, from that moment, I wanted to be a Beatle, just like thousands of young guys, you know. And uh, there wasn't any screaming until at the end of each song. So you could actually hear the band play. And they played amazing. And then seven months later, we went to see them again in a local town near Manchester, and we couldn't hear them because everybody was screaming all the way through. 
<laughs> well, that's great. You got to see them before <laughs> before it became deafening. <laughs> um, so yeah. you, you know, you mentioned your influences and you know how you had a band uh, called Warriors in the '60s. How did you transition from that? And you know, how did you actually form Yes in 1968? Gosh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> the short version. <laughs> here's here's the quick version. I was. I was with the Warriors, and, and, and we were on tour in Germany, and the guys in the band wouldn't get out of bed and rehearse. I had some crazy ideas to, to do musically, so they kept telling me to go away. Not as polite as that, but just kept, go away, John, every morning. And I said, okay. And I packed up my bags, and I went to London. And I, and I was working in a bar above one of the famous uh, clubs in London, which was the Marquee Club. And you'd have the Who playing there. You'd have, uh, you know, the Small Faces with uh, uh, Rod Stewart was singing in, in that band. Uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix would play there. And they'd all come up to the bar before the gig and after the gig. And I was working in the bar cleaning up and serving a bit, but just generally clean, cleaning up. And uh, one day the, the owner of the bar said, you know, you've been looking for a band. There's a guy over there looking for a singer. And it was this tall guy, just me and him in the bar about six in the evening, and it was Chris Squire. And uh, he had a band called Mabel Greer's Toy Shop. And I said, that the name, name's a bit too long for me. We should be called something short, you know. Eventually, we called ourselves Yes. But the following day, I went with Chris to his band, and uh, we started rehearsing ideas, and I had so many ideas for songs. Most of them were... Pretty famous songs anyway. Uh, we actually did a couple of songs from West Side Story, but we jazzed them up, rock and roll jazz fusion. We had a drummer called Bill Bruford, and he was very jazzified, you know. So we we developed our style over a period of about three years before we really hit the big time with uh, with Roundabout, which was our third album. We had a song on, on, on that called Ramba, and that was the song that really helped us, and obviously Fragile, and then Close to the Edge. So by the time four or five years had passed, we were pretty famous around the world, which was kind of amazing, because you never think it's going to happen to you, but it did. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned Roundabout. Unpack that a little bit for me. You know, do you remember, you know, how that song came together, you know, writing it or, or arranging it? Well, uh, we were in Scotland. Uh, we were up in Aberdeen the north of Scotland, and we were driving down to Glasgow. And the road down to Glasgow was this beautiful ride, uh, just a two-lane roadway. And there must have been about 25 roundabouts on the way down. And it was, it was about 200 miles trip. And me and Steve Howe, he had a guitar in the back of the van, and we started writing a song. And I, I saw these mountains coming out of the sky because the, you couldn't see the top of the mountains because of the clouds. And then we'd go past all these uh, Loch Lomond and all these lakes in and around the lake. And and, and in 24 hours, we were going to be back in London. And that was the idea of the song. And we wrote most of it on the way to Glasgow. And we recorded it two days later in London. It's kind of amazing. That's really cool. Well, you have... Gosh, so many songs and so many albums we could ask you about, but it would take forever. But I know my listeners would kill me if I don't ask you about Owner of a Lonely Heart. I mean, you're probably your most iconic. Um, real quick, similar to how you just did for Roundabout, how did Owner of a Lonely Heart come about? Okay. I w it was like the beginning of the 80s, and I was in the south of France, and I 
started writing music about this beautiful guy I met. He was a great uh, 90 years old artist from Russia called Mark Chagall. And I started writing songs for him and thinking of a musical about his life and things. And then I got a phone call from Chris. John, are you coming to London? I said, oh, yeah, I'm coming next week. He said, well, I want to speak to you when, when you get there. And I thought, well, I haven't seen Chris for three years. I said, why not, you know? We'll get together. We're all, we're all brothers. You know, <laughs> we might not understand each other after time, but we're musical brothers. So he came to the to my, to my house in London, and he had a Rolls Royce. And so we sat in his Rolls Royce, and he played me these tapes. And they were really, really very interesting. They're very, very different. Very sampled music here and there. Very, very well uh, produced. Was beautiful. And they were going to be called Cinema. And I said, this is a great album, Chris. I've got to go now. He said, no, no, no. Would you be interested to sing on it? And I said, well, yeah. But I think, you know, this song, On of a Lonely Heart, the chorus is great. But the song is a bit boring. Why, do, why don't you just do a staccato, like, move yourself. Get out of your life. Come on. Or else you'll be On of a Lonely Heart, sort of thing. And he said, come on tomorrow to the studio. And so I said, okay. On the way, I said, you know, we're going to be called yes. He said, yeah, but that's what we want. I said, well, that's okay. So I spent, uh, you know, a couple of weeks singing all the parts and rearranging sections and uh, putting my sort of musical stamp on Own of a Lonely Heart. I, I wrote the verses with Trevor, the first verse, and, and the producer, Trevor Horn. He watched me as I wrote the next verse and the middle bridge and everything. The chorus was always Trevor Raven. You know, it was always a hit record. Stay tuned for the rest of my conversation with Yes Frontman John Anderson, but first a message from a fellow WTOP podcast. DMV Download, the new daily podcast from WTOP News is out now. Hosts Megan Clorty and Luke Garrett get the story behind the story. Every weekday afternoon, Megan and I will go beyond the headlines with WTOP reporters and sources to bring you more on the biggest local stories impacting you, our fellow Washingtonians. The DMV Download podcast is available now on all major podcast platforms. Platforms. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The DMV Download Podcast is presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Welcome back to Beyond the Fame for the rest of my conversation with Yes Frontman John Anderson. Those are probably the two biggest hits that, you know, folks of all generations have heard roundabout known over Lonely Heart. But do you, do you personally have one that you've always thought, you know, a song or an album that you thought was underrated, like one of your personal favorites that maybe never got the acclaim that, that you thought it deserved? Well, actually, there's a couple, but... It's, it's a funny life, you know, because by the time we did Own of a Lonely Heart, you know, I was probably 35 years old, I think, 36 or so. And I thought I was too old to be a rock star, pop star, whatever. So I really never made albums writing pop music, if you like. Except I tried one in the 80s uh, when, there was, when I was famous, more famous. The record company gave me a lot of money, gave me a check and said... Uh, so what are you going to do? Are you going to make a record? I said, yeah, I'm going to go to Cuba. I'm going to sing with the big bands in Cuba because they're amazing, which I, is very true. So they stopped the check, and they said, no, no, no. If you're going to write, do an album for us, you know, Arista Records, you've got to do it uh, with maybe a, a producer we know. He's, he's just been producing Simply Red. He knows who you are. He likes you very much. He knows Toto one of the great bands of all time who are session musicians. 
and you can actually make the album with the session musician called Toto. And I said, okay, we'll do that. And uh, it was a really, really good album. I actually wrote uh, with uh, a very famous songwriter called Lamont Dozier. Now, Dozier comes from Holland, Dozier, Holland, who were writing all the Motown songs of the 60s, 70s, incredible writers. So we wrote two or three songs one afternoon at his house in the valley in L.A., and one of them was uh, Hold On To Love. And I thought, this is a hit record. I definitely think this is a hit record. And it never was, except it was a big hit record in Quebec for some reason. <laughs> you never you know, know, right? <laughs> then, you know, I went up to Quebec to do a solo show. I love doing solo concerts, just me and a guitar. And they invited me up to a festival, and I went up there. And I, I got to the gig, and the management was around the corner of the, the, the festival. And I went to the office, and they're playing my song. Hold on to that. And I said, you don't really have to play it. Don't worry, you know. And they said, what do you mean we don't have to play it? We love it. This is a top ten song. And I said, oh. We're talking because you have a, a new solo album out called A Thousand Hands. And, you know, tell our listeners why you called it A Thousand Hands, you know, honoring everyone you've worked with over the years. Yeah, I think that was it. How many people I've known in my lifetime that have influenced me? Well, I actually wrote out uh, on my Facebook one time, and I got up to about 300 people that really influenced me in my life, musical people, artists, dancers, uh, all sorts of people. And uh, when, when we were doing this album originally, I just wanted to add different musicians on that I'd met in my travels. And uh, the more I thought about it, I thought I, I should call the album Oslot, which means a lot of us. And then when we started... Uh, 30 years later, 20, 28 years later, we started uh, finishing the album in Orlando and the, uh, the actual producer, Michael Franklin, suggested, why don't you call it 1,000 Hands? It means a lot in China. And I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. Why not? <laughs> I agree. It does sound pretty cool. Wait, so you just mentioned, did you did you really start working on this solo album, you know, like 20, 30 years ago? Has it really been that long? Yeah. I was... Uh, I'll try and keep it short, the story. I was in L.A. My friend there was Brian Chatton, and Brian Chatton was in my first band, the Warriors, in the 60s. And he joined the Warriors when he was 16 years old. And we, we kept up our friendship all these years. And he just happened to be in L.A. at the same time as me. So I asked him to write some music for me. I need some songs, some music for songs sort of thing. And he gave me a cassette of ideas he had. And I went up to Big Bear which is southeast of L.A. It's a big uh, ski resort. And I went up there to just relax and get away from the world. And I had a 16-track uh, recorder. So I started writing these songs. And Brian came up with a couple of friends, Keith Hefner, great keyboard player, and Gary Barlow, great musician. And uh, so we just hung around and did some great tracks. And then I, I had to go on tour uh, in 1991. So... After about three months in the, in the in the mountains, I went on tour with Kitaro, a famous uh, Japanese composer, and Brian Chan went on tour with B.B. King. So everybody split up for a long time, and we didn't realize it was going to take 28 years for us to start putting the album back together. And Michael Franklin, who's a producer in uh, Orlando, he got in touch with me and said, I want those tapes that you have from Big Bear. And I said... Uh, 
Oh, gosh, they're in my garage. I'll send them to you. And you got the big tapes. These are big 24-track tapes. And what you have to do is put them in the oven and bake them. And so they'll only play once because it's all just uh, tape. And uh, <laughs> you go straight to computer. And Michael sent me the the, 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 the songs. And I said, hey, so they sound great. All we need to do is put some really talented people on, and it'll make it really good. I love it. I love that, you know, you stayed committed to making that and brought it back around. Um, tell our listeners about, you know, how the various songs on the album span different sorts of styles. You know, you have some acoustic beds, you have some reggae pop, you have some funk. Well, we had definitely six songs from the mountains that we really loved. And uh, again, they were a classic sort of, see, I write as though it's yes, for some reason. That's my, my idea of music is yes music. And uh, I've done a lot of different kinds of solo albums, very ethnic, very world music, Native American energy music, um, that kind of thing. Because, uh, you know, music is such an adventure. So basically, we got to a point where Michael Franklin knew so many musicians in and around Orlando because they work at uh, Universal or Disney World and all that kind of thing. And he just got... He got Chick Corea to play on a track, and then Billy Cobham and uh, Jean-Luc Ponty played on a track, and all these people came and played on the music. So the music sort of evolved, and we were just sort of short of about three songs. So I sent him some of my vocalizationing, which I do every day. I have this uh, energy to sing every morning. I love it. And uh, it's sort of chanting in a way, and it comes from a video I saw years and years ago about these pygmies in West Africa. When they go out hunting and foraging, they just sing kind of energy, and the insects, insects and birds sing along with them, and it's kind of extraordinary. So I sent to Michael Franklin a couple of these three, four mini ideas, and he just added some incredible, uh, straight from actually, he actually recorded the music for Ramalama and Where Does Music Come From on a plane ride from Orlando to China. Because he, he, goes to, he goes to China all the time. And it, so it's amazing how in these days you can have all those incredible sounds on a computer and he just, you know, mix them into the vocals that I've done. And that's, that's why we have such a, an array of ideas on the album. Wow, I love it. And the newest single is called Firstborn Leaders. Um, explain to our listeners how, what it's about, you know, how mankind's next phase of enlightenment that you see. Explain that. Well, in some ways, uh, it reminds me of the 60s when, when I really, I was a hippie, I still am, and uh, the world was changing so drastically in the 60s, and it's just like it is now in, in, in 2020. I didn't know it was going to be like this this year, but that's what it is. The, the whole world is changing on many levels consciously. And so the song Firstborn Leaders are the people that really woke up in the 60s. They, and they have children and grandchildren now. But we are the sort of firstborn leaders of a, of a higher principle of life and a love of life and make love, not war, and things like that. <laughs> so nice. the song is all about... The introduction is that, and then the song is all about how many different kinds of people that I was meeting in Big Bear. And I wrote down their names and uh, sang about them, and that's what the track is about. It's a good, fun track to do on, on tour. 
but I keep forgetting the name, so I have a cheat sheet in front of me every time I sing that song. And I still cannot remember all the names, which is crazy. <laughs> we appreciate um, all your time, and congrats on uh, getting inducted in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, that had to have been a good feeling. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I, I, sh- I, I, I did sh- shake a lot of hands. It was incredible. I wish you well, Jason. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks, man. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.